The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant, Chapter 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Of the division of transcendental logic into transcendental analytic and dialectic. In transcendental logic we isolate the understanding, as in transcendental aesthetic, the sensibility, and select from our cognition merely that part of thought which has its origin in the understanding alone. The exercise of this pure cognition, however, depends upon this as its condition, that objects to which it may be applied be given to us in intuition, for without intuition the whole of our cognition is without objects, and is therefore quite void. That part of transcendental logic, then, which treats of the elements of pure cognition of the understanding, and of the principles without which no object at all can be thought, is transcendental analytic, and at the same time a logic of truth. For no cognition can contradict it without losing at the same time all content, that is, losing all reference to an object, and therefore all truth. But because we are very easily seduced into employing these pure cognitions and principles of the understanding by themselves, and that even beyond the boundaries of experience, which yet is the only source whence we can obtain matter, objects, on which those pure conceptions may be employed, understanding runs the risk of making, by means of empty sophisms, a material and objective use of the mere formal principles of the pure understanding, and of passing judgments on objects without distinction. Objects which are not given to us, nay, perhaps cannot be given to us in any way. Now, as it ought properly to be only a canon for judging of the empirical use of the understanding, this kind of logic is misused when we seek to employ it as an organ of the universal and unlimited exercise of the understanding, and attempt with the pure understanding alone to judge synthetically, affirm, and determine respecting objects in general. In this case, the exercise of the pure understanding becomes dialectical. The second part of our transcendental logic must therefore be a critique of dialectical illusion, and this critique we shall term transcendental dialectic, not meaning it as an art of producing dogmatically such illusion, an art which is unfortunately too current among the practitioners of metaphysical juggling but as a critique of understanding and reason in regard to their hyperphysical use. This critique will expose the groundless nature of the pretensions of these two faculties and invalidate their claims to the discovery and enlargement of our cognitions merely by means of transcendental principles, and show that the proper employment of these faculties is to test the judgments made by the pure understanding and to guard it from sophistical delusion. Transcendental Logic, First Division. Transcendental Analytic, SS1.
transcendental analytic is the dissection of the whole of our a priori knowledge into the elements of the pure cognition of the understanding in order to effect our purpose it is necessary one that the conceptions be pure and not empirical two that they belong not to intuition and sensibility but to thought and understanding three that they be elementary conceptions and as such quite different from deduced or compound conceptions four that our table of these elementary conceptions be complete and fill up the whole sphere of the pure understanding now this completeness of a science cannot be accepted with confidence on the guarantee of a mere estimate of its existence in an aggregate formed only by means of repeated experiments and attempts the completeness which we require is possible only by means of an idea of the totality of the a priori cognition of the understanding and through the thereby determined division of the conceptions which form the said whole consequently only by means of their connection in a system pure understanding distinguishes itself not merely from everything empirical but also completely from all sensibility it is a unity self-subsistent, self-sufficient, and not to be enlarged by any additions from without. Hence the sum of its cognition constitutes a system to be determined by and comprised under an idea, and the completeness and articulation of this system can at the same time serve as a test of the correctness and genuineness of all the parts of cognition that belong to it the whole of this part of transcendental logic consists of two books of which the one contains the conceptions and the other the principles of pure understanding book one subsection two analytic of conceptions by the term analytic of conceptions i do not understand the analysis of these or the usual process in philosophical investigations of dissecting the conceptions which present themselves according to their content and so making them clear but i mean the hitherto little attempted dissection of the faculty of understanding itself in order to investigate the possibility of conceptions a priori by looking for them in the understanding alone as their birthplace and analyzing the pure use of this faculty for this is the proper duty of a transcendental philosophy what remains is the logical treatment of the conceptions in philosophy in general we shall therefore follow up the pure conceptions even to their germs and beginnings in the human understanding in which they lie until they are developed on occasions presented by experience and freed by the same understanding from the empirical conditions attaching to them are set forth in their unalloyed purity chapter one of the transcendental clue to the discovery of all pure conceptions of the understanding subsection three introductory when we call into play a faculty of cognition different conceptions manifest themselves according to the different circumstances and make known this faculty and assemble themselves into a more or less extensive collection according to the time or penetration that has been applied to the consideration of them where this process conducted as it is mechanically so to speak will end cannot be determined with certainty 
Besides, the conceptions which we discover in this haphazard manner present themselves by no means in order and systematic unity, but are at last coupled together only according to resemblances to each other, and arranged in series according to the quantity of their content, from the simpler to the more complex, series which are anything but systematic, though not altogether without a certain kind of method in their construction. Transcendental philosophy has the advantage, and moreover the duty, of searching for its conceptions according to a principle, because these conceptions spring pure and unmixed out of the understanding as an absolute unity, and therefore must be connected with each other according to one conception or idea. A connection of this kind, however, furnishes us with a ready, prepared rule, by which its proper place may be assigned to every pure conception of the understanding, and the completeness of the system of all be determined a priori, both which would otherwise have been dependent on mere choice or chance. Subsection 4, Section 1 Of Defined Above Use of Understanding in General the understanding was defined above only negatively as a non-sensuous faculty of cognition. Now, independently of sensibility, we cannot possibly have any intuition. Consequently, the understanding is no faculty of intuition. But besides intuitions, there is no other mode of cognition except through conceptions. Consequently, the cognition of every, at least every human, understanding is a cognition through conceptions, not intuitive, but discursive. All intuitions, as sensuous, depend on affectations, conceptions, therefore, upon functions. By the word function, I understand the unity of the act of arranging diverse representations under one common representation. Conceptions, then, are based on the spontaneity of thought, as sensuous intuitions are on the receptivity of impressions. Now, the understanding cannot make any other use of these conceptions than to judge by means of them. As no representation, except an intuition, relates immediately to its object, a conception never relates immediately to an object, but only to some other representation thereof, be that an intuition or itself a conception. A judgment, therefore, is the immediate cognition of an object. Consequently, the representation of a representation of it. In every judgment there is a conception which applies to and is valid for many other conceptions, and which among these comprehends also a given representation, this last being immediately connected with an object. For example, in the judgment, all bodies are divisible, our conception of divisible applies to various other conceptions. Among these, however, it is here particularly applied to the conception of body, and this conception of body relates to certain phenomena which occur to us. These objects, therefore, are immediately represented by the conception of divisibility. All judgments, accordingly, are functions of unity in our representations, inasmuch as, instead of an immediate a higher representation which comprises this and various others is used for our cognition of the object and thereby many possible cognitions are collected into one but we can reduce all acts of the understanding to judgments so that understanding may be represented as the faculty of judging for it is according to what has been said above a faculty of thought 
Now thought is cognition by means of conceptions. But conceptions, as predicates of possible judgments, relate to some representation of a yet undetermined object. Thus the conception of body indicates something, for example metal, which can be cognized by means of that conception. It is, therefore, a conception for the reason alone that other representations are contained under it, by means of which it can relate to objects. It is, therefore, the predicate to a possible judgment. For example, every metal is a body. All the functions of the understanding, therefore, can be discovered when we can completely exhibit the functions of unity in judgments, and that this may be effected very easily, the following section will show. Subsection 5, Section 2 of the logical function of the understanding in judgments. If we abstract the content of a judgment and consider only the intellectual form thereof, we find that the function of thought in a judgment can be brought under four heads, of which each contains three momenta. These may be conveniently represented in the following table. 1. Quantity of judgments, universal, particular, singular. 2. Quality, affirmative, negative, infinite. 3. Relation, categorical, hypothetical, disjunctive. 4. Modality, problematical, assertorical, apodeictical. As this division appears to differ in some, though not essential, points from the usual technique of logicians, the following observations for the prevention of otherwise possible misunderstanding will not be without their use. 1. Logicians say, with justice, that in the use of judgments in syllogisms, singular judgments may be treated like universal ones. For, precisely because a singular judgment has no extent at all, its predicate cannot refer to a part of that which is contained in the conception of the subject and be excluded from the rest. The predicate is valid for the whole conception just as if it were a general conception, and had extent to the whole of which the predicate applied. On the other hand, let us compare a singular with a general judgment, merely as a cognition in regard to quantity, the singular judgment relates to the general one, as unity to infinity, and is therefore in itself essentially different. Thus, if we estimate a singular judgment, judicium singulare, not merely according to its intrinsic validity as a judgment, but also as a cognition generally, according to its quantity in comparison with that of other cognitions, it is then entirely different from a general judgment, judicium commune, and in a complete table of the momenta of thought deserves a separate place, though indeed this would not be necessary in a logic limited merely to the consideration of the use of judgments in reference to each other. 2. In like manner, in transcendental logic, infinite must be distinguished from affirmative judgments, although in general logic they are rightly enough classed under affirmative. General logic abstracts all content of the predicate, though it be negative, and only considers whether the said predicate be affirmed or denied of the subject. 
but transcendental logic considers also the worth or content of this logical of affirmation an affirmation by means of a merely negative predicate and inquires how much the sum total of our cognition gains by this affirmation for example if i say of the soul it is not mortal by this negative judgment i should at least ward off error now by the proposition the soul is not mortal i have in respect of the logical form really affirmed inasmuch as i thereby place the soul in the unlimited sphere of immortal beings now because of the whole sphere of possible existences the mortal occupies one part and the immortal the other neither more nor less is affirmed by the proposition that the soul is one among the infinite multitude of things which remain over when i take away the whole mortal part but by this proceeding we accomplish only this much that the infinite sphere of all possible existences is in so far limited that the mortal is excluded from it and the soul is placed in the remaining part of the extent of this sphere but this part remains notwithstanding this exception infinite and more and more parts may be taken away from the whole sphere without in the slightest degree thereby augmenting or affirmatively determining our conception of the soul these judgments therefore infinite in respect of their logical extent are in respect of the content of their cognition merely limitative they are consequently entitled to a place in our transcendental table of all the momenta of thought and judgments because the function of the understanding exercised by them may perhaps be of importance in the field of its pure a priori cognition three all relations of thought and judgments are those a of the predicate to the subject b of the principle to its consequence c of the divided cognition and all the members of the division to each other in the first of these three classes we consider only two conceptions in the second two judgments in the third several judgments in relation to each other the hypothetical proposition if perfect justice exists the obstinately wicked are punished contains properly the relation to each other of two propositions namely perfect justice exists and the obstinately wicked are punished whether these propositions are in themselves true is a question not here decided nothing is cogitated by means of this judgment except a certain consequence finally the disjunctive judgment contains a relation of two or more propositions to each other a relation not of consequence but of logical opposition in so far as the sphere of the one proposition excludes that of the other but it contains at the same time a relation of community in so far as all propositions taken together fill up the sphere of the cognition the disjunctive judgment contains therefore the relation of the parts of the whole sphere of a cognition since the sphere of each part is a complemental part of the sphere of the other each contributing to form the sum total of the divided cognition take for example the proposition the world exists either through blind chance or through internal necessity or through an external cause 
each of these propositions embraces a part of the sphere of our possible cognition as to the existence of a world, all of them taken together, the whole sphere. To take the cognition out of one of these spheres is equivalent to placing it in one of the others, and, on the other hand, to place it in one sphere is equivalent to taking it out of the rest. There is, therefore, in a disjunctive judgment a certain community of cognitions which consists in this, that they mutually exclude each other, yet thereby determine as a whole the true cognition, inasmuch as, taken together, they make up the complete content of a particular given cognition. And this is all that I find necessary for the sake of what follows to remark in this place. The modality of judgments is a quite peculiar function with this distinguishing characteristic that it contributes nothing to the content of a judgment. For, besides quantity, quality, and relation, there is nothing more that constitutes the content of a judgment, but concerns itself only with the value of the copula in relation to thought in general. Problematical judgments are those in which the affirmation or negation is accepted as merely possible, ad libitum. If the assertorical, we regard the propositional as real, true. In apodeictical, we look on it as necessary. Thus two judgments, antecedents and consequence, the relation of which constitutes a hypothetical judgment, likewise those the members of the division, in whose reciprocity the disjunctive consists, are only problematical. In the example above given, the proposition, there exists perfect justice, is not stated assertorically, but as an ad libitum judgment, which someone may choose to adopt, and the consequence alone is assertorical. Hence such judgments may be obviously false, and yet taken problematically to be conditions of our cognition of the truth. Yet the proposition, the world exists only by blind chance, is in the disjunctive judgment of problematical import only. That is to say, one may accept it for the moment, and it helps us, like the indication of the wrong road among all the roads that one can take, to find out the true proposition. The problematical proposition is, therefore, that which expresses only logical possibility, which is not objective. That is, it expresses a free choice to admit the validity of such a proposition, a merely arbitrary reception of it into the understanding. The assertorical speaks of logical reality of truth, as, for example, in a hypothetical syllogism. The antecedents present itself in a problematical form in the major, in an assertorical form in the minor, and it shows that the proposition is in harmony with the laws of the understanding. The apodiectical proposition cogitates the assertorical as determined by these very laws of the understanding, consequently as affirming a priori, and in this manner it expresses logical necessity. Now, because all is here gradually incorporated with the understanding, inasmuch as the first place we judge problematically, then accept assertorically our judgment as true, lastly, affirm it as inseparably united with the understanding, that is, as necessary and apodeictical. We may safely reckon these three functions of modality as so 
many momenta of thought. SS6, Section 3 of the Pure Conceptions of the Understanding or Categories. General logic, as has been repeatedly said, makes abstraction of all content of cognition and expects to receive representations from some other quarter in order, by means of analysis, to convert them into conceptions. On the contrary, transcendental logic has lying before it the manifold content of a priori sensibility, which transcendental aesthetic presents to it in order to give matter to the pure conceptions of the understanding, without which transcendental logic would have no content, and be therefore utterly void. Now space and time contain an infinite diversity of determinations of pure a priori intuition, but are nevertheless the condition of the mind's receptivity, under which alone it can obtain representations of objects, and which, consequently, must always affect the conception of these objects. But the spontaneity of thought requires that this diversity be examined after a certain manner, received into the mind, and connected in order afterwards to form a cognition out of it. This process I call synthesis. By the word synthesis, in its most general signification, I understand the process of joining different representations to each other, and of comprehending their diversity in one cognition. This synthesis is pure when the diversity is not given empirically, but a priori, as that in space and time. Our representations must be given previously to any analysis of them, and no conceptions can arise quad their content analytically. But the synthesis of a diversity, be it given a priori or empirically, is the first requisite for the production of a cognition, which in its beginning indeed may be crude and confused, and therefore in need of analysis. Still, synthesis is that by which alone the elements of our cognitions are collected and united into a certain content. Consequently, it is the first thing on which we must fix our attention, if we wish to investigate the origin of our knowledge. Synthesis, generally speaking, is, as we shall afterwards see, the mere operation of the imagination, a blind but indispensable function of the soul without which we should have no cognition whatever, but of the working of which we are seldom even conscious. But to reduce this synthesis to conceptions is a function of the understanding by means of which we attain to cognition, in the proper meaning of the term. Pure synthesis, represented generally, gives us the pure conception of the understanding, but by this pure synthesis, I mean that which rests upon a basis of a priori synthetical unity. Thus our numeration, and this is more observable in large numbers, is a synthesis according to conceptions, because it takes place according to a common basis of unity, for example the decade. By means of this conception, therefore, the unity in the synthesis of the manifold becomes necessary. By means of analysis, different representations are brought under one conception, an operation of which general logic treats. 
On the other hand, the duty of transcendental logic is to reduce the conceptions, not representations, but the pure synthesis of representations. The first thing which must be given to us for the sake of the a priori cognition of all objects is the diversity of the pure intuition. The synthesis of this diversity by means of the imagination is the second, but this gives as yet no cognition. The conceptions which give unity to this pure synthesis, and which consist solely in the representation of this necessary synthetical unity, furnish the third requisite for the cognition of an object, and these conceptions are given by the understanding. The same function which gives unity to the different representation in a judgment gives also unity to the mere synthesis of different representations in an intuition and this unity we call the pure conception of the understanding thus the same understanding and by the same operations whereby in conceptions by means of analytical unity it produced the logical form of a judgment introduces by means of the synthetical unity of the manifold in intuition a transcendental content into its representations on which account they are called pure conceptions of the understanding, and they apply a priori to objects, a result not within the power of general logic. In this manner there arise exactly so many pure conceptions of the understanding, applying a priori to objects of intuition, in general, as there are logical functions in all possible judgments for there is no other function or faculty existing in the understanding besides those enumerated in that table. These conceptions we shall, with Aristotle, call categories, our purpose being originally identical with his, notwithstanding the great difference in execution. Table of the Categories 1. Of Quantity, Unity, Plurality, Totality 2. Of quality, reality, negation, limitation. 3. Of inherence and subsistence, substantia e accidens. Of causality and dependence, cause and effect. Of community, reciprocity between the agent and the patient. 4. Of modality, possibility, impossibility, existence, non-existence, necessity, contingence. This, then, is a catalogue of all the originally pure conceptions of the synthesis, which the understanding contains a priori, and these conceptions alone entitle it to be called a pure understanding, inasmuch as only by them it can render the manifold of intuition conceivable, in other words, think an object of intuition. This division is made systematically from a common principle, namely the faculty of judgment, which is just the same as the power of thought, and has not arisen rhapsodically from a search at haphazard after pure conceptions, respecting the full number of which we never could be certain, inasmuch as we employ induction alone in our search without considering 
that in this way we can never understand wherefore precisely these conceptions, and none others, abide in the pure understanding. It was a design worthy of an acute thinker like Aristotle to search for these fundamental conceptions. Destitute, however, of any guiding principle, he picked them up just as they occurred to him, and at first hunted out ten, which he called categories, predicaments. Afterwards he believed that he had discovered five others which were added under the name of post-predicaments, but his catalogue still remained defective. Besides, there are to be found among them some of the modes of pure sensibility, quando, ubi, situs, also prius, simul, and likewise an empirical conception, motus, which can by no means belong to this genealogical register of the pure understanding. Moreover, there are deduced conceptions, actio, passio, enumerated among the original conceptions, and of the latter some are entirely wanting. With regard to these, it is to be remarked that the categories, as the true primitive conceptions of the pure understanding, have also their pure deduced conceptions, which, in a complete system of transcendental philosophy, must by no means be passed over, though in a merely critical essay we must be contented with the simple mention of the fact. Let it be allowed to call these pure but deduced conceptions of the understanding the predictables of the pure understanding in contradiction to predicaments. If we are in possession of the original and primitive, the deduced and subsidiary conceptions can easily be added, and the genealogical tree of the understanding completely delineated. As my present aim is not to set forth the complete system, but merely the principles of one, I reserve this task for another time. It may be easily executed by any one who will refer to the ontological manuals, and subordinate to the category of causality, for example, the predictables of force, action, passion, to that of community, those of presence and resistance, to the categories of modality, those origination, extinction, change, and so with the rest. The categories combined with the modes of pure sensibility, or with one another, afford a great number of deduced a priori conceptions, a complete enumeration of which would be a useful and not unpleasant, but in this place a perfectly dispensable occupation. I purposefully omit the definitions of the categories in this treatise. I shall analyze these conceptions only so far as is necessary for the doctrine of method, which is to form a part of this critique. In a system of pure reason, definitions of them would be with justice demanded of me, but to give them here would only bide from our view the main aim of our investigation, at the same time raising doubts and objections and consideration of which, without injustice to our main purpose, may be very well postponed till another opportunity. Meanwhile, it ought to be sufficiently clear, from the little we have already said on this subject, that the formation of a complete vocabulary of pure conceptions, accompanied by all the requisite explanations, is not only a possible, but an easy undertaking. 
the compartments already exist. It is only necessary to fill them up, and a systematic topic like the present indicates with perfect precision the proper place to which each conception belongs while it readily points out any that have not yet been filled up. SS7 our table of the categories suggests considerations of some importance which may perhaps have significant results in regard to the scientific form of all rational cognitions. For, that this table is useful in the theoretical part of philosophy, nay, indispensable for the sketching of the complete plan of a science, so far as that science rests upon conceptions a priori, and for dividing it mathematically according to fixed principles it is most manifest from the fact that it contains all the elementary conceptions of the understanding nay even the form of a system of these in the understanding itself and consequently indicates all the momenta and also the internal arrangement of a projected speculative science as i have elsewhere shown here follows some of these observations 1. This table, which contains four classes of conceptions of the understanding, may, in the first instance, be divided into two classes, the first of which relates to objects of intuition, pure as well as empirical, the second to the existence of these objects, either in relation to one another or to the understanding. The former of these classes of categories I would entitle the mathematical and the latter the dynamical categories. The former, as we see, has no correlates. These are only to be found in the second class. This difference must have a ground in the nature of the human understanding. 2. The number of the categories in each class is always the same, namely 3 a fact which also demands some consideration because in all other cases division a priori through conceptions is necessarily dichotomy it is to be added that the third category in each triad always arises from the combination of the second with the first thus totality is nothing else but plurality contemplated as unity limitation is merely reality conjoined with negation Community is the causality of a substance, reciprocally determining and determined by other substances. And finally, necessity is nothing but existence which is given through the possibility itself. Let it not be supposed, however, that the third category is merely a deduced and not a primitive conception of the pure understanding. For the conjunction of the first and second in order to produce the third conception requires a particular function of the understanding which is by no means identical with those which are exercised in the first and second thus the conception of a number which belongs to the category of totality is not always possible where the conceptions of multitude and unity exist for example in the representation of the infinite or if i can join the conception of a cause with that of a substance it does not follow that the conception of influence that is how one substance can be the cause of something in another substance will be understood from that 
thus it is evident that a particular act of the understanding is here necessary and so in the other instances three with respect to one category namely that of community which is found in the third class it is not so easy as with the others to detect its accordance with the form of the disjunctive judgment which corresponds to it in the table of the logical functions in order to assure ourselves of this accordance we must observe that in every disjunctive judgment the sphere of the judgment that is the complex of all that is contained in it is represented as a whole divided into parts and since one part cannot be contained in the other they are cogitated as coordinated with not subordinated to each other so that they do not determine each other unilaterally as in a linear series but reciprocally as in an aggregate if one member of the division is posited all the rest are excluded and conversely now a like connection is cogitated in a whole of things for one thing is not subordinated as effect to another as cause of its existence but on the contrary is coordinated contemporaneously and reciprocally as a cause in relation to the determination of the others for example in a body the parts of which mutually attract and repel each other and this is an entirely different kind of connection from that which we find in the mere relation of the cause to the effect the principle to the consequence for in such a connection the consequence does not in its turn determine the principle and therefore does not constitute with the latter a whole just as the creator does not with the world make up a whole the process of understanding by which it represents to itself the sphere of a divided conception is employed also when we think of a thing as divisible and in the same manner as the members of the division in the former exclude one another and yet are connected in one sphere so the understanding represents to itself the parts of the latter as having each of them an existence as substances independently of the others and yet as united in one whole s s eight in the transcendental philosophy of the ancients there exists one more leading division which contains pure conceptions of the understanding and which although not numbered among the categories ought according to them as conceptions a priori to be valid of objects but in this case they would augment the number of the categories which cannot be these are set forth in the proposition so renowned among the schoolmen quolibet ens es unum verum bonum now though the inferences from this principle were mere tautological propositions and though it is allowed only by courtesy to retain a place in modern metaphysics yet a thought which maintained itself for such a length of time however empty it seems to be deserves an investigation of its origin and justifies the conjecture that it must be grounded in some law of the understanding which as is often the case has only been erroneously interpreted these pretended transcendental predicates are in fact nothing but logical requisites and criteria of all cognition of objects and they employ as the basis of this cognition the categories of quantity namely unity plurality and totality 
but these which must be taken as material conditions, that is, as belonging to the possibility of things themselves, they employ merely in a formal signification, as belonging to the logical requisites of all cognition, and yet most unguardedly changed these criteria of thought into properties of objects as things in themselves. Now in every cognition of an object there is unity of conception which may be called qualitative unity, so far as by this term we understand only the unity in our connection of the manifold. For example, unity of the theme in a play, an oration, or a story. Secondly, there is truth in respect of the deductions from it. The more true deductions we have from a given conception, the more criteria of its objective reality. This we might call the qualitative plurality of characteristic marks, which belong to a conception as to a common foundation, but are not cogitated as a quantity in it. Thirdly, there is perfection, which consists in this, that the plurality falls back upon the unity of the conception and accords completely with that conception and with no other. This we may denominate qualitative completeness. Hence, it is evident that these logical criteria of the possibility of cognition are merely the three categories of quantity modified and transformed to suit an unauthorized manner of applying them, that is to say, the three categories in which the unity in the production of the quantum must be homogeneous throughout are transformed solely with a view to the connection of heterogeneous parts of cognition in one act of consciousness by means of the quality of the cognition which is the principle of that connection thus the criterion of the possibility of a conception not of its object is the definition of it in which the unity of the conception the truth of all that may be immediately deduced from it and finally the completeness of what has been thus deduced constitute the requisites for the reproduction of the whole conception thus also the criterion or test of an hypothesis is the intelligibility of the received principle of explanation or its unity without help from any subsidiary hypothesis the truth of our deductions from it consistency with each other and with experience and lastly the completeness of the principle of the explanation of these deductions which refer to neither more nor less than what was admitted in the hypothesis restoring analytically and a posteriori what was cogitated synthetically and a priori by the conceptions therefore of unity truth and perfection we have made no addition to the transcendental table of the categories which is complete without them we have on the contrary merely employed the three categories of quantity setting aside their application to objects of experience as general logical laws of the consistency of cognition with itself. End of chapter 4